I spent the past couple days doing one of the things that I love just about more than anything else, up riding mountain bikes in the fall foliage and rolling along the hills and was sobered as I was out there disconnected from the news and from media to learn of the tragic events in Pittsburgh. It's a little bit closer home to our family, I know, to the Patron family as well. Um, my wife Jane grew up in Pittsburgh, friends who come from the Jewish community there. The church has traditionally engaged in times like this in prayers of lament, lament for the victims, lament for the conditions that lead to someone going in and gunning down. They, they release the names and the ages of the victims, mainly elderly people worshiping. Events that cause our police officers to have to put their lives on the line by rushing into danger. And so I'm going to lead us this morning as we start our worship time in a prayer of lament, in a prayer asking for repentance. And those of us who grew up maybe in the evangelical church or churches that didn't practice this, it may seem a little awkward to be owning the sin that led to this, but it is a practice that has been done by the church for centuries. And it reminds us of our own culpability, maybe not directly, but as part of this society that we live in. And it also helps us understand and gain the motivation to seek justice, walk humbly, act mercifully as we go out of this place. So if you'll stand with me. And as a sign of our unity both with the victims and with the society that produced the murderer, we ask and we pray, Lord, we are without excuse. We have neglected your ways. We have ignored your instructions. We have allowed for violence and hatred, selfishness and fear to grow unchecked in our hearts, in our homes, and in our country. We have indulged in media and conversations that seem only to stoke these sins and give justification to them, calling what is evil good, necessary, and powerful, and what is good, partisan, impractical, and weak. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. We ask specifically for mercy and comfort for our brothers and sisters murdered as they gathered for worship yesterday in Pittsburgh at Tree of Life Temple. We ask also that you help us pray for the murderer and the grace not to respond to violence with violence. Abba, grant us repentance and teach us the ways of peace and true wisdom. 
We pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You have a seat. My name is John Ray. I am the head of the teaching team here at Grace Church. We're exceptionally glad you're with us on this beautiful day here. We're glad if you're watching on Facebook Live, if you're listening to the podcast. Um, Thank you. Thank you for making the effort. Thank you for making the time. Thank you for seeking us out. We're genuinely grateful that you're here. We don't assume that you're just going to show up. But we pray and we hope that what we offer will be worth your time this morning as we gather in Jesus' name. It's been, along with the glories of riding through the fall foliage, uh, it's been a tough week as well, not just with how we just prayed with the murder, but also, for me personally, the passing of Eugene Peterson is something of a major milestone. Just one of the countless pieces of wisdom that he wrote is this. He said that the whole spiritual life, that's the whole spiritual life, it's learning how to die. And as you learn how to die, you start losing all your illusions and you start being capable now of true intimacy and love. I'll let that set with you a while. Now imagine a person who not only penned such wisdom, but also lived it. I wrote a piece for the blog this week on our website. I actually wrote a letter to Eugene Peterson. Of all the theologians that I have read over the course of my life, Peterson's voice, his iconoclastic, mystical, and pedestrian grandeur, fill my imagination almost every corner. He is a pastor theologian. He's someone I've sought to emulate, someone I had hoped to meet in in life, in this life, and was never able to, but had a number of friends who met him. And if you read any of the testimonies that are out there this week, without exception, they say that he was exactly who you would imagine him to be. There was no differentiation between his private conduct and his public persona even though he shunned the limelight. If I have any wisdom, it probably can be traced back somewhere in some relation to Peterson's writing and pastoring with that. But then we have to ask, well, where did Peterson get his wisdom? Where did he find it? And where does wisdom come from? Well, that's the question we're looking at this week as we continue our series of encountering the covenant and walking through the Old Testament in various passages. And what we see here is not only where wisdom comes from, but that wisdom teaches us that there is more to this life than what we possess, is that wisdom gives us the clearest lens on how to evaluate what is good, what is bad, what is right, what is wrong, what is merciful, what is just, what is true, and what is beautiful. Well, let's dig into our text. We're looking this week in the book of 1 Kings, 
And we're looking at Solomon. Last week we studied Solomon's parents. This week we see their son, Solomon. So 1 Kings 4, starting with verse 1. The king, that is Solomon, went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for it had the most prominent of the high places. Solomon would offer up a thousand burnt sacrifices on the altar there. One night in Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream. Now let's pause for a minute and just a little geography. Gibeon is where the Ark of the Covenant, when it was being brought with the people of Israel, and as they took Jerusalem, they were moving it towards Jerusalem, an incident occurred, and they they basically stored it temporarily. It, resi- it was residing on this high place hill in Gibeon. So the priests so of Solomon would go out of the city of Jerusalem, offer the sacrifices there. So that's why they went there. God said, tell me what I should give you. Solomon replied, you demonstrated great loyalty to your servant, my father David, as he served you faithfully, properly, and sincerely. You have maintained his great loyalty, this great loyalty to this day by allowing his son to sit on the throne. Now, O oh Lord my God, you have made your servant king in my father David's place, even though I'm only a young man and am inexperienced. Your servant stands among your chosen people. They are a great nation that is too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning mind so he can make judicial decisions for your people And distinguish right from wrong. Otherwise, no one is able to make judicial decisions for this great nation of yours. The Lord was pleased that Solomon made this request. God said to him, because you have asked for the ability to make wise judicial decisions, and not for a long life or riches or vengeance on your enemies, I will grant your request. And I will give you a wise and discerning mind superior to that of anyone who has preceded or will succeed you. Furthermore, I'm giving you what you did not request, riches and honor, so that you will be the greatest king of your generation. If you follow my instructions and obey my rules and regulations, just as your father did, then I will grant you long life. Solomon then woke up and realized it was a dream. He went to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, offered up burnt sacrifices, presented peace offerings, and held a feast for all his servants. Well, let's pause here. If we just ended this here, we've got a pretty good proof text for the prosperity gospel. I mean, we could, we, if we extract this from context and just look at this, we could make a very strong case for, hey, if you want to get what you want, here's your formula. Here's the way to be rich. Here's the way to be successful. Here's the way... To have a great long life, just do A plus B and you will get C with that. But let's stop and consider the context and consider the whole story here. Well, first of all, let's let's look at Solomon himself. So Solomon is David and Bathsheba's son. He was one of the youngest of David's offspring. He was not going to be king. He was not directly in line to be king, but due to Bathsheba's kind of behind the scene maneuvering and some court intrigue, Solomon ends up on the throne as a young person. And he reigns in this brief 
golden age of Israel's peace and prosperity. It's easy to forget, as much as we talk about all the kings and all the kingdoms and all the things that Israel went through, that they only experienced a very brief time where they were not either under attack or occupied or besieged. Solomon oversaw one of those times. But we have to understand, or we have to ask the question, is this giving, this granting of riches, of prestige, a cautionary tale or an exemplary tale? You see, when the, when the people of Israel asked God for a king, God wasn't happy. God himself saw this as a rejection of his rule. When the people clamored coming out of the time of the patriarchs, the time of the judges, and they said, give us a king, why? So that we can be like the other nations. The prophets warned them against this. But God said, no, that's what the people have asked for. That's what I'll grant them. He went on, though, to give them a number of warnings at that time. He said, look, if I'm going to give you a king, let me tell you what it's going to be like. They're going to send your young men to war. They're going to take your riches as their own. They're going to pollute the people with these marriages and arrangements with different nations and different places. They're going to act to their own good over the good of the people. And even though we think often, again, our imagination around Solomon is that he was this incredibly wise king. He was, he, he was humble and he asked God for wisdom and he didn't ask for riches. What we see is that God's prophecy came true. Solomon enriched himself. He took young men into armies to fight battles. And while the nation may have prospered, Israel just became like every other country, top-down, with government that took more than it gave, sending young men to war to die, subjugating the people, and creating an economy that benefited the few at the expense of the many. Solomon did that. Not the evil kings that we read about. Solomon did that. But we discuss this a lot in the teaching team this, meet, this, this week, is that did God, when he gave, when he granted Solomon the riches, when he granted Solomon the long life, did he, did he do that kind of as a teaching lesson? Was it kind of like we do with our kids, right? It's like, okay, you, you want that? Here you go. I'll give it to you. Let's see how that works out for you. Was it done in that vein? Or was it, did, did God genuinely want Solomon to succeed? Was this a genuine blessing that God was giving Solomon? I think the answer is both. 
I don't think God did this with malicious intent. I don't think God did it just to set Solomon up to fail. I don't think God did it just to prove that, hey, see, I told you so. But at the same time, I think he had to know. I think God knew where it was going. That's why he had warned him not to do it. He knew how it was going to turn out. And when we think about the wisdom of Solomon, as we look into our story in just a minute, we often think of the pragmatic wisdom here, of the wisdom to rule well, of the, of the, the wisdom to establish a kingdom. The real wisdom of Solomon comes through in the book of Ecclesiastes. If you really want to know where the discernment that God gave Solomon is expressed, read the book of Ecclesiastes. So let's go on. There's, this happens next as a demonstration of this in the text. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. One of the women said, my master, this woman and I live in the same house. I had a baby while she was with me in the house. Then three days after I had my baby, this woman also had a baby. We were alone. There was no one else in the house except the two of us. This woman's child suffocated during the night when she rolled on top of him. She got up in the middle of the night, took my son from my side while your servant was sleeping. She put him in her arms. She put her dead son in my arms. I got up in the morning to nurse my son, and there he was dead. But when I examined him carefully in the morning, I realized it was not my baby. The other woman said, no, my son is alive. Your son is dead. But the first woman replied, no, your son is dead. Mine son is alive. Each presented her case before the king. The king said, one says, my son is alive, your son is dead. While the other says, no, your son is dead, my son is alive. The king ordered, get me a sword. So they placed a sword before the king. The king then said, cut the living child in half and give half to one and half to the other. The real mother spoke up to the king, for her motherly instincts were aroused. She said, my master, give her, to the li give her the living child. Whatever you do, don't kill him. But the other woman said, neither of us will have him. Let him be cut in two. The king responded, give the, fir give the first woman, woman the living child. Don't kill him. She is the mother. Then all Israel heard about the judicial decision which the king had rendered, and they respected the king, for they realized that he possessed divine wisdom to make judicial decisions. So we understand here that both in the practical and in the philosophical, both in the day-to-day -day and the mystical, Solomon is walking in a wisdom that comes from God. But we have to understand, as we look at this story, God is not a means to an end. If this story had had a happy ending, we would have a perfect formula for using God to get what we want instead of the other way around. And by this story, I mean the, the story of Solomon, the whole story of his life, the whole story of Israel under his rule. Solomon was not wrong to ask for wisdom. We should do likewise. But we need to also understand that wisdom does not come without both blessing 
and challenge. Folks, it's a lot easier, especially it seems in this day and age, to just stay ignorant. To just surround ourselves in our own echo chamber of people who think like us, act like us, live like us, and just block out every other opinion, every other perspective. Wisdom invites being challenged. And we have to remember that the end goal of wisdom is not just our personal happiness, but it is the glory of God, and it is to bless others. And that wisdom comes at a cost, both to us and to God. Granting wisdom cost God something. Look, every parent in here knows how difficult it is to let your kids learn the hard lessons. We've see, we're seeing an increasing generation after generation of kids who cannot function in the real world, who have no resiliency, they have no grit, they have no capacity to respond to adversity because we as parents, saying we, myself included, have rushed in to rescue, have tried to save them from challenge and difficulty, have tried it out of our love, out of our compassion, out of genuine good effect, good intent, have prevented them from the consequences of their choices. The result is what we see increasingly. People who have no capacity for adversity, no way to work through. Look, it's natural to want to rescue. It's natural to want to prevent suffering, especially for those we love. But there's a cost to that. And wisdom teaches us that there needs to be balance in that. And in the same way, God... How much must God suffer to let us have our way? How much must God suffer? How much must it cost God not to constantly step in and rescue, not to constantly stop? Every tragedy, all the suffering. The wisdom that God gives us cost God something. I want to contrast this with the wisdom, with the wisdom of Solomon and the passion of the mother. And the child. You see, look, the, this story, the story of the two prostitutes, it's, it's parabolic. It, it's, like, it's structured like a parable. Everything indicates that it, it, was a, it was a parable. It was packaged to be told to the people as a way of learning about Solomon's wisdom. But it also subversively in there teaches us something about the very nature of God. 
Because if we were to locate God in this story, in all of this text, the person who most emulates God is the mother who says, don't kill the child. It's not Solomon. Yes, Solomon is wise. Yes, Solomon is pragmatic. Yes, Solomon solves a problem. And there are elements of God's nature that do that. But if you really want to know God's heart, look at this mother who is willing at great personal sacrifice to give up her only son that her son might live even though it cost her everything. The way that God relates to us cost God. Finally, we see that covenant is revealed in what it offers and the limits it sets. This theological term is called the self-limiting of God, that God can do all things, but God chooses not to do all things. And covenant here is expressed in that as we've been talking through it. God makes these promises, but these promises don't prevent us from suffering the consequences of our choices. Now, they do in some ways mitigate the ultimate consequences, absolutely. But also, covenant is expressed in what it doesn't do as much as what it does. I don't know how many of you followed uh, the news earlier this week amidst all the other stuff. Uh, there was this lottery thing going on. Anybody pay attention to that? Now, fess up. How many of you, when you heard it, got up to like 1.30 trillion, whatever it was, didn't start doing some shopping in your head? <laughs> you didn't start updating your uh, Amazon wish list with uh, what you were going to do with those winnings, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's almost impossible not to do. Everybody's talking on the radio, what would you do? And what, if you won the lottery, how would you do it? And what would you get? I heard that your, your odds of being killed by a vending machine were higher than winning the lottery. And thank God, really, case after case, study after study, shows that one of the worst things that can happen to a person is to win the lottery. Now, we don't, right? We, we all think, I'm going to be different, <laughs> right? And you think, yeah, man, I'll, oh, well, that's good to know, so I'll be careful because I'm going to be different. <laughs> you won't. I won't. That's not what we need. We don't need to win the lottery, y'all. We need wisdom. We need the wisdom that comes from God, and we need to understand what that wisdom is about. James, as he writes, he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously. The lottery got so big because they reduced the odds. 
They were losing. People were finally figuring it out that the lottery was just, it, it was a tax on the poor. It was, it's a horrible way to run a system. It's a horrible way to fund things. The lottery was figuring it. They had gone from almost 80% participation down to 50% participation. People were finally getting wise, like this is just a waste of money, so they weren't playing anymore. So they said, let's do this. Let's actually make it harder to win so the pot will go up, so we'll get more publicity. And they were right. People started playing again because all of a sudden, 500 million wasn't enough. But hey, a, a billion dollars? Uh, I mean, I got to try that. Even though your odds were worse, people played. God says, if you lack wisdom, just ask. You don't have to buy a ticket. You don't have to play the odds. You don't have to scratch and wonder if the numbers are going to match underneath there. They match, and it's free. Here it is. He gives generously. But then the real work starts. And that's where the wisdom leads us. Let wisdom lead you. May wisdom lead us where we can find life and find it abundantly. I ask the worship team to come up as we transition to communion, to taking our offering to reflection and to worship. If you're joining us for the first time, we have this time after the teaching to share in communion. Our table is open to all who are following Jesus, to all who want to know him and to share in the kingdom. The table is especially poignant in times like these where we are watching people suffer tremendous tragedy because it reminds us that Jesus likewise suffered. This table cost Jesus something. But it's given without shame, it's given without guilt, and it's given freely. And it offers us hope in the midst of these times. We take an offering because we are all connected. None of us is without need, and none of us is without something to share. As we give offering, we recognize that. We reflect here, we take this time to reflect and to worship because you're not supposed to just take it because I've got a microphone on. You need to discern what's been presented here. You need to think about it. You need to pray and let the Holy Spirit be your teacher. You need to gather in your community groups and discuss it and understand it so that it's your wisdom not mine, but yours. And together we practice that. And we worship because we continue to confess with our mouths and our spirits what is true, even in dark times. Thank you for being here this morning.